Our Father, this morning, we are very thankful that we can sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We can hear it played, and our hearts rejoice, and are indeed attuned to the fact that you bring rich blessing to us. And our hearts, too, can sympathize with the reality that our hearts are prone to wander. And yet you and your rich grace and mercy have time and time again and will always, once you call us your child, continue to call us children of God. And so as we are reminded from Romans 8 this morning that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are again reminded of the rich mercy and grace that you have given to us by your dear Son. We pray that you would continue to overwhelm us with the truths, the promises that are sure this morning in Christ Jesus. Lord, there are some this morning that are hurting and have been for some time. We think of the Badig and Myozi family, for Laverne and for her health. And, oh, Father, we pray that you would give Sharon and all her family deep wisdom, that you'd continue to comfort and encourage Laverne she has trusted and put her faith in you and she was even here on Wednesday but Lord you've seen fit to bring her back to the hospital and we pray that you would give her strength for whatever step she has next ordained by you Lord we think of others like Tina Tomaselli and Laurel and even Simon Richard and the health and physical realities that you've placed in their life. We think of Donna Stafford this morning. We think of Brent Kimes' mother. Lord, there are many more. We pray that you would bind up in each heart the truth that you have sealed us for the day of redemption. And Lord, too, we pray for all those who are hurting and affected by the great earthquake overseas. We pray for those who mourn great loss in our country September 11th tomorrow. Lord, you are worthy to give you praise even in the midst of great trouble and tribulation. And you are good, and only you satisfy through all these things. And so we pray that you would increase our faith, give us the ability this morning to worship you without distraction and according to your greatness and your goodness. And we pray that our lives would be great lights, beacons of hope, for a world that does not have answers.
But there is one this morning that does. And his name is Jesus. And he is the word that dwelt among us. And he is the one that reveals your glory. And so he is the object, and he alone is the object of our worship this morning. We pray that we would be men and women, brothers and sisters, children of God, adequate mouthpieces as we go forth today, that we would walk worthy. Those of us who are weak physically, spiritually, in all other areas, Lord, we pray that we would grow and manifest the goodness and the grace of God to a world that desperately needs you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to open our Bibles to John chapter 11. If you do not have a Bible this morning, I would ask, and the ushers, we, we don't have any tissues, and I'm a guy who needs tissues already, uh, but uh, thank you. I will take one because no one wants to shake my hand afterwards if I don't use it. Appreciate that. If you need a Bible this morning, I would ask that you would just raise your hand. I certainly don't want to embarrass you, but we're going to be in the Bible this morning, and I would love for you to follow along. So that's you. Uh, feel free to raise your hand. It, it could be uh, you forgot it. If you have a phone, you can also just Google John chapter 11, and that'll be helpful as well. But feel free. Uh, we have ushers in the back ready to give you a Bible, so feel free to, to take one if you, if you need one. We've been in John chapter 11 now for some time, and Pastor Mike preached a phenomenal message last week on the, the very fact, the historical record of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in, excuse me, the resurrection of Lazarus by the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and this chapter was really devoted to the sickness, to the death, and now to the resurrection of Jesus' friend Lazarus. And it's apparent to us from the text that Jesus had a purpose for Lazarus' death. Turn with me. Uh, we're in John chapter 11, I said. Turn with me to verse 4. We're not going to start all the way back there this morning, but it's good to get a running start into our text this morning. Here's the purpose that really Jesus outlined for us. And, and folks, this is important for us to understand where we are in the, in the Bible, or where we are in the book of, of John, in the gospel. We're really making a turn now from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry. In fact, many, the, many commentaries would kind of uh, outline the book according to this turn. And uh, this is true in so many ways. We're going to go ahead and articulate them throughout the sermon, though that's not the main part of our, uh, our task this morning. But, but the reality is, is Jesus does this sign, and in verse 4, he's giving us a purpose statement for this sign. There is a distinct reason, and, and not always does Jesus articulate a reason why he does something outside of someone's faith, but here, he really gives us a window into the heart of God and the Son of Man to, for the reason of doing these miracles. And in verse 4, Jesus heard this, that is, that Lazarus was sick and, and unto death. Jesus says this, the sickness is not to end in death. 
And a little way through this narrative, we're, if we're, a, if we're, a, if we're a, a follower of Jesus, we're kind of questioning if that's true or not. But he says, it is unto this end. This is the, the reason. Tell us, the glory of God. So that the Son of God may be glorified. And so uh, we see that there's a large unpacking of how Jesus and God are going to be glorified through the, through the resurrection of Lazarus. In fact, it's then therefore not a surprise that Jesus kind of waits two days, right? And really seals the deal for Lazarus, Lazarus to be dead. John spends much of the time giving us certain details about Lazarus's death and Jesus' sign, raising Lazarus from the dead. But surprisingly, he gives us no testimony of Lazarus' first-hand account. I think even Pastor Mike said, it would have been nice to have something from Lazarus. Like, what, what was it like? But that's not the point. The point is the Son of God's going to be glorified. It's not about the miracle itself, but the miracle unto the glory of God. Indeed, here, right after the resurrection of Lazarus, Lazarus slips into the background. We really don't even see much of Lazarus anymore. He, he appears a few times in chapter 12, but he slips into the back. And you think someone who's prominent like this, this would be a big deal. But he slips into the background, and what comes to the fore is the response of the miracle by disciples, certainly. We'll see that. By those who were following, those who visited Mary and Martha, trying to comfort them in, in their time of great grief. But also, and particularly, a response by those who do not believe in Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of Lazarus' death. They were eyewitnesses of Lazarus now being raised from the dead. And yet they don't believe. And this is an interesting turn because we're looking to see God glorified. This is the purpose of Jesus' miracle. But yet, really outside of verse 45, which is where we're going to start this morning, and so you can turn to John eleven forty-five. Outside of that verse, the rest of the verses, and really moving into chapter 12, deals with the reality that there are some who are confronted with who Jesus is, and it is plain today as day to them. They do not deny it, but yet they will not trust in him. And that's, that's hard for us to understand. With all the mounting evidence of who Jesus is, we have folks in our own life, don't we? People and loved ones in our own life that we, we, are, we, we have articulated over and over again who Jesus is. They've even seen it maybe from the Bible. We've even had a chance to witness to them and they seem to get it, to get it, to get it. And then it just seems to derail when they have to actually trust in Jesus as Savior. And it leaves us wondering in amazement, how can you not trust in this Jesus? And really, John here is going to help unpack just what are those symptoms of unbelief. And so we're going to be looking at the symptoms of, and here I'm going to do a little play, the symptoms of believing 
unbelief. And I'm going to try to unpack that because that may not make sense to you, but I can't get away from that as I study this out. And so maybe I'll get feedback that that was just the stupidest thing in the world to try to articulate it that way. But I hope by the end we'll, we'll understand what I mean. But there are folks, there are people who are eyewitnesses who literally turn around and go to the Pharisees. We're going to read this in a second. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But we're going to, they're going to turn around, go to the Pharisees, and, and articulate, hey, you know what? This Jesus, look what he did. Lazarus is raised from the dead. They believed it, but yet they completely missed believing in him. They knew a lot about him, but they missed trusting in him for the salvation he offers. And that's really verse 46 through the end of the chapter really unpacks that. The symptoms of believing unbelief. Not just the skeptic, as Pastor Mike chatted about last week, but, but those who understand, even assent to, but do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so I, I want to just first off state, because I'm, I'm saying we're going to look at the symptoms of believing unbelief, I want to I make very clear that our passage, and even Pastor Mike last week said there are really two forks in the road now that Jesus, was, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There's either those who believe and those who do not believe. And that's true. Verse 45 articulates, and let's look at it so we don't get too ahead of ourselves here. Verse 45 articulates those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and so the text says, here, sorry, I'm having some special difficulties. All right. Therefore, many of the Jews, this is after the resurrection of Lazarus, who came to comfort Mary, little extra explanation there, and saw in Martha, and saw what he had done, what Jesus had done, raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. So there it is. There's, there's the one group, okay? And then there's, there's the second group of individuals, and we're going to unpack that in verses 46 and following, and that's the group that did not believe. And what I want us to be careful about and be very clear about here is that there is no middle ground. There is no, you're either going to believe in Jesus Christ or you are going to be on the other side and not believe, not trust in. There is no middle ground. In our text, John makes that very clear. And so there is a line in the sand. And those who, are, who have symptoms of believing unbelief, as we draw the line in the sand, they're in the unbelief side, okay? And so I want to be very clear about that as we go on. You know, I want to illustrate this way because... Pastor Tim mentioned Peg Sharp skydiving a few weeks ago. Do you remember that? And uh, she has been one of my heroes because of that for a long time because, frankly, you will never see me uh, voluntarily jump out of a plane. I think I would have a heart attack before I even got out of the plane just thinking about it. Uh, but it's altogether one thing to recognize that parachutes open and slow your free fall to the point that you will survive, right? It's one thing to know that. I mean, if, if we were on a plane going down and someone handed me a parachute and I put it on, I probably would be able to figure it out, right? Because my life depends on it. You get out there, you pull this ripcord thing, and poof, you just go, right? May not have a lot of fun doing it, but I'd figure it out. It's not really an overly complicated thing. Some of you skydive, maybe there's more to it, but in a pinch, pull the cord, right? 
But it's an altogether another thing to open up that door, feel the pressure, feel the wind so you can't hear anything, be 10,000 feet up in the air, look out, and all you see is blue, and take that step. As your plane is going 100 miles per hour, and as you start the free fall between 150 to 200 miles per hour, if you're a daredevil and you're going head first, right? And then to pull the ripcord, and then to sufficiently slow yourself to impact the ground in a healthy way. There's a whole lot of difference between those two things, to actually know about it and actually get out and do it. And that's the difference between belief and what I'm calling here believing unbelief, trusting in Jesus or just knowing about him. And this is the point in verse 46, and so why don't we look and read the passage together this morning. Verse 46, But some of them went to the Pharisees, those who did not believe, and told them the things which Jesus had done. And remember, the Pharisees were not friendly to Jesus. In fact, in John chapter 7, and from that point on, we know that they are looking to arrest Jesus. In verse 47, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council of the Sanhedrin and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. They weren't denying it, just like those who went to go see the Pharisees in verse 46 weren't denying what Jesus had done. But yet they were still perplexed, and we're going to unpack the reasons why. This man is doing many signs. In verse 48, If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man dies for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this. This is John's that was Caiaphas's words, and, and now John gives us a, 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 a statement here, a narrative, a narrator statement. Uh, and he says, now he did not say this as Caiaphas on his own initiative. So then we have to ask, okay, whose initiative was it? We're going to unpack that. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him, to kill Jesus. Verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify the, the, themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. And so we have a great reality people seeing what Jesus had done, but yet not believing in him. And that will really get unpacked in chapter 12 as we move forward in the Gospel of John. 
But I want to investigate here in this brief time that we have the symptoms of believing unbelief. And so the first symptom is it replaces God's authority. Unbelief replaces God's authority with man's authority or some other authority. It replaces God's authority. And John draws a strong contrast in verse 46 between those who trusted in verse 45 and those who didn't trust in verse 46. And this is sort of odd, isn't it? You would think that if you were a uh, eyewitness in verse 46, you wouldn't run to the Pharisees, you'd run to your friends, to your family, to those that you loved, and you would tell them, hey, this man has done something remarkable, something miraculous. And yet instead, they ran to the authority that they had placed themselves under that was really tripping them up from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in allegiance with the Pharisees who, as I had mentioned, had been pursuing Christ's arrest and silence at no matter what cost since John chapter 7. And they had the same evidence that those who believed in verse 45, they saw the same dead, the, the reality of the same dead Lazarus and then the one who is now alive. And the only difference is Jesus came and told him to come out. They had the same evidence, but yet they went to the Pharisees, who were the, really the popular, the populace, if you want, that's a big word today in politics, the popular leaders of the day. They were by overwhelmingly the, the people's uh, leadership of the Jews. And so I want to ask a few series of questions today as we go through the text, helping us unpack the symptoms of unbelief. And the, the first symptom is it replaces God's authority. And so the question for us this morning, or maybe for someone who knows about Jesus but hasn't trusted in Jesus, the question is, has your belief in Jesus changed who you go to for approval? You know, as teenagers, I'm, I'm a youth pastor, so we have, we have a lot of peer pressure issues, and we want to please people, but you know, it's not just a teenage thing. <laughs> it's an adult thing as well. It's a human nature thing. It's a, it's a condition that we all have. And in fact, Jesus later on in chapter 12 says that you would rather please, you're not believing in me because you'd rather please man than God. So who do you go to for approval? Who do you run to? Now we sing this song, I run to Christ. Who do you run to for approval? The Pharisees were the most hostile enemy Jesus had walking on the face of the earth. They wanted to trip him up at every turn. They were deceiving him with questions or trying to. They couldn't. And ultimately murder him. Yet the Pharisees were the minority on the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, what we just read. They had profound influence in ma mainstream Judaism, but they were the, the minority council, and that's going to be interesting in a second. But Josephus, a Jewish historian, a little later in the first century, uh, writes about the Pharisees' influence, right? And I just want to put this into real terms. These are people that seem to be uh, hard and oppressive, and they're people that we would not hang out with at all, right? But during Jesus' time, they were the popular ones. They were the ones everyone wanted approval from and to hang with. And Josephus was a Pharisee, so he's a little biased, in his portrayal of Pharisees, but nonetheless, he gives us 
maybe a window, if, if not bias a little bit, into the world of Pharisee uh, life. He says uh, this, Pharisees were extremely influential among the townsfolk, so the common people. And all prayers and sacred rites of divine worship are performed according to their exposition. In other words, people mimicked them. Vain repetition. They copied them. They were the people you wanted to sound like. This is a great tribute, he says, that the inhabitants of the cities, by practicing the highest ideal both in their way of life and in their discourse, have paid to the excellencies of the Pharisees. <laughs> so he may be a little biased, but nonetheless, he gives us an opportunity to, to understand that these were people that the rest of the common people in, 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 as Jews wanted to follow. And the systems of the world are strong, aren't they, folks? You turn on the TV and you hear your neighbors talking like you hear the TV talking. One channel or the other. The systems of the world are strong. We can run into politics, finances, cultural, ethnic, right? All of these things. I mean, we don't have Little Italy and, and, and a Croatian lodge in Cleveland for nothing, let alone all the other ethnicities. But, but think of the irony here. And John's going to unpack irony after irony after irony in this text. Here the Pharisees had such a strong pull and clout over these eyewitnesses that they saw death, Lazarus, turn to life and these eyewitnesses would rather go to the Pharisees and turn in the one who made death life so that they could kill him. It's just mind-blowing. You may have someone you know Right, that understands or seems to understand the power of God as you articulate the truths of God's word and they may have even felt it in, in their life. And, and, they, and they, they understand the truth. They see it. They can articulate it with their own lips. And yet when the reality comes to trust in Jesus, the conversation kind of goes away. This is true in my own life. Um, I was saved about 25, 26 years ago now. And shortly after that time, uh, some of my family, including my own father, professed Christ. In fact, I don't want to get off track here, but actually he and my brother and I, we, we were all baptized together right there. Right there. Now I said he professed Christ. But it came to a point shortly after that. As God continued to work in my life, something changed in my father's life. You see, for years afterwards, I, I, I tried to understand why my father actually walked away from the truth and from the profession and from the pro, uh, public proclamation to this church that he was a believer according to the gospel. And for years, I was... And it, it kind of finally, it slowly started to piece in that I really think my dad wanted the approval of his father and his mother and his brother and his nephews 
particularly his nephews as they're around the fire, drinking what they want to drink and talking the way they want to talk. And I think it came to a point early on in my dad's life where it was either he was going to have the approval of man or the approval of God. And I see some of you visibly shaking your head, no, no. And don't we feel that when we look at the perfect, when we look at Christ and see that all that he's done for us, how could you turn away from that for this? Has your belief in Jesus changed who you go to approval for? Has your belief in Jesus revealed a divide in worldviews? Here's another question. Remember I mentioned that the Pharisees and the chief priests, they gathered together and, and, and they formed the council, the, the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees were one group. The chief priests largely, uh, predominantly belonged to another group and those were the Sadducees. And you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, until Jesus came into the picture, they were at war with each other, kind of like our political parties today. It's not really unlike that, folks. They were different in their, they both had Judaism in their background, but they were very different. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees were sad, you see, remember that? From, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Right? The Pharisees believed in angels. They loved the supernatural. They were worked up with miracles. And the Sadducees, well, they were sad. <laughs> they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles. And so they, they were at war. The Pharisees had the common people's hearts. The Sadducees, they were kind of the, the noblemen of the day. They were the chief priests. They were the, the aristocrats, the ones who were up in the uppy-ups. The hoity-toity, if you will. I tried to say both at the same time. It wasn't going to work. It happens a lot. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees were against each other and Yet, look at what they do in verse 47. They convened the council and they agreed. What in the world are we going to do with this Jesus? You see, we asked the question, has your belief in Jesus revealed a divided world view or has revealed your world view? And and, and, and the, the truth be told that there really are only two worldviews. And we could turn there, but we're not going to. But you can write in your notes, Psalm 2. There are either those who are fist against God, like they are, they are angry with him and they are looking to throw him down. Or they are willing to bow the knee and submit to him as God. Jesus gives us this worldview in John 15 where he says the world is going to hate you because it hated me first. So church, we're not going to be lovely to the world. We are going to be divided in our worldviews against everybody else who doesn't keep Jesus as king. That will be that way until we see him as king. It can't change. We don't want to give anything as a stumbling block to, to get them to see our Jesus but we are not going to be lovely in their sight with entertainment, with music. You just throw it all in there. We're not going to be lovely to them. So don't even try. There are different worldviews. John chapter 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth for your word is truth. So we have to grow. 
We have to be like him. We're going to have a different worldview. But then he says this in verse 18, so we need to grow and we need to be pure and be sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the reality is, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So we have to be in the world, but not of the world. But the reality of all those things that we just unpacked is that there is a divided worldview. And I know there's a lot of different ideologies out there. We've got Marxism, we've got capitalism, we've got all these kind of things, and there's, there's ways to kind of filter worldview. If you're a worldview studier, there's a, there's a way to kind of filter through worldviews, the problem, the solutions, these kind of things. But the reality is, there, is there, there really are only two. That's my point. And it's either God or anti-God. It's either submitting to Jesus or wanting Jesus to submit to you. Period. So that means that our, our politics, our economic system, while there may be some good in capitalism, it can go overboard. And it can be just as anti-God as you put in another kind of economic system. Okay. So has Jesus changed your worldview according to the scriptures? Is that your highest allegiance? So the first symptom of unbelief replaces God's authority with man's authority. And the second system of unbelief is, is, is this, that believing unbelief reveals its self-preserving motive. Not only does believing unbelief have an issue with the authority of the God of heaven, but it also has a self-preserving motive. Look at that with, at verse 47. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come together, they convene this council, and they are at each other's throats until Jesus comes into the scene. And then right away, what happens? Well, it's us against him now. And so they, they say, right, what are you doing? For this man is performing many signs. He's the enemy. No longer are our ideologies. And so it's crystal clear that there are two worldviews, God or anti-God, and that a, someone who's interested in unbe unbe believing unbelief, someone who expo is exposed in their symptoms by unbelief is someone who is self-preserving in their motive. They are looking forward to themselves and not to somebody else. They have the me, myself, and I syndrome. You know, talking to people like that can be exhausting, can it? You start talking to someone and like every word out of their mouth is about themselves and they could go on and on and on and on and finally you fake. Is that wrong to fake that you're getting a phone call? <laughs> right? Have you ever done that? Oh, sorry. You know what? This is an emergency. I gotta go. Now you know if I ever do that, I'm fake. No, I'm just joking. It's not true. I only have one time that I pick up my cell phone and it's for my, for my wife if I'm in a meeting and I usually tell people that. So, uh, Unless I text, text her to say, honey, call me. <laughs> I might do that. Uh, that is not outside of my ethical box. But other than that, all right. Verse 46, all right. The council says, what are we doing? The focus is on themselves. What we're doing isn't working. We've got to figure something else out. And then they say this. And this is, this is astounding. And John doesn't let anything pass. This is amazing to me. John is probably my favorite gospel writer. Um, can you have favorites? I'd get along with John, all right? I don't know if you'd get along with me, though. All right. He says this. 
They say, uh, he's, he, he says of what the council is saying, what are we doing for this man? Look at it, verse 47. For this man is what? Is performing many what? Signs. Now folks, think about what you know so far as we've been going through the book of John. What John is trying to do Think about his purpose statement. I'm getting ahead of myself. Think about the prologue. Think about what John is trying to do with these signs. And I want to help you with that this morning. So we're going to pause for a second, and we're going to look at the New Testament's usage of the word miracle. We're going to do this very briefly because we don't have a whole lot of time. But there are three primary words for miracle in the New Testament. One is dunamis. You know that word, right? You've heard it before. That's the word where we get our word what from? Dynamite. Great power. Right? When, when, when the woman with issue of blood touches Jesus, right? She can feel great power going into her, just like Jesus says, I can feel great power leaving me. It's the power of, this, of, of a miracle to do something supernatural, something that you and I don't have the power to do. That's dunamis. It really focuses on the source of the miracle, God himself, the great powerful one that is supernatural. Then there's the word teros. It's the word where we get our, our word wonder from. Acts talks about, there, there's quite a few couplings of wonders and signs in the book of Acts, right? And, and the word teros, wonder, awe, to look in amazement. That's the response that someone, whether it's the person who had the great power working in them or, or, for, or for the congregation who saw that great power working in someone else, they look at it, whoa! That's amazing! That's incredible! It's teros. It's a wonder. It really emphasizes the response of the miracle. Then there's the word semion. Semion. And it is the word for sign. It's, it's, it's in the Gospel of John 17 times. Compared to Matthew, who only uses it five times, Mark, who only uses it five times, and Luke, who only uses it twice. And all but three times in the book of John, all of them have occurred but three up until this point in chapter 11. Again, remember, we're talking about Jesus' public ministry now coming to a close. And think about the reality of what God is, John is trying to through, God is trying to do through John and it through the sign ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 2 very quickly. This is the first time that John brings up one of the signs and it's a wedding feast. You remember this? And Jesus turns water into wine. Something that no one else can do. It's a miracle. And John says this. You know, as Jesus' first sign, and as the book is kind of interested in Jesus' signs altogether, so that Jesus and God will be glorified, John gives us a little reason. He gives us a purpose statement of why he's recording the signs in the book of John. He does that at the beginning of the book here in John chapter 20. Excuse me, John chapter 2. And then he does it at the end of the book in John chapter 20, verse 30. And so John says this. This is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested 
his glory. Think about the prologue of, of the book of John, remember? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The only as of the only glory from the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So how do we, what's part of how we are beholding his glory? Through this book, through Jesus working in a mighty way that none of us can do, through signs. So the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee so that his glory would be manifested. And then what happened in verse 11? And his disciples, what? Believed. Jesus did these things just like he raised Lazarus from the dead so that people would glorify God and believe. And that goes to John's purpose statement, right? That John says, hey, you know what? There are, there are a few signs I've put down in my gospel. There are so many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples that are not even close to written in this book. But I did it. I, I, I'm writing these things so that what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So understanding the words available for miracle, it is incredible that the Sanhedrin spoke officially that Jesus was performing what? Signs. If, if I was going to use a word for, and I was an unbeliever, I would have said Jesus is performing teros. He's performing wonders. He's getting people so amped up and so emotional about something that might not even be true. But they don't deny the, the viability. They don't deny what Jesus is doing. In fact, they're playing right into the, to the providence of God by saying that Jesus is performing amazing, miraculous, powerful, only God kind of quality signs. And yet they don't believe in him because they are self-preserving in their motives. So has your belief in Jesus changed? Secondly, who owns you? Not just, not just your self-preserving motive, but has it changed who owns you in this self-preserving motive? Look at verse 48. They say, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our, our, our what? Our place. Probably referring to, I mean, where's their place? Their place is in the temple, right? Probably referring to their power, their influence, specifically in the temple. And then they're also gonna take away our what? Our nation. And isn't that, there's another irony. They didn't even have a nation, they had Roman overlords. In fact, that's why they're so worked up about Jesus. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together in the Sanhedrin and they're all against Jesus because they're scared that what Jesus is doing is causing the common people to follow him and not them. And, and Rome is going to see that as a threat because at least the Pharisees and the Sadducees were puppets and we're okay. We're not going to, we're not going to, we're going to co uh, peacefully, peacefully coexist. And yet, they're so interested in their self-preserving realities. And, and you know, as, as believers, we, we don't have those. 
We're new creatures in Christ. We're no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness because Jesus has changed who owns us. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, the chief priests, they were owned by the overlords of Rome. But you and I are owned by our Lord, Jesus Christ. And has your belief in Jesus changed your understanding of absolute morality? Look at this, verse 49, right? Uh, Caiaphas starts unpacking, okay, hey, don't you know anything? And, and, and uh, don't you understand that it's better for an innocent man to die than a guilty nation? <laughs> and so then they made plans to kill Jesus. And this is, I mean, this is, this is pragmatism at its best. This is what self-preserving, uh, selfish motivation does all day long. It's a pragmatic, pragmatic plan. I mean, there's, there's nothing else to say. But they are, they are, they're, there's just no clear boundaries for morality. There's, there's no ethical dilemmas for them. It's whatever works to keep numero uno in charge. But don't we see that just being unpacked all day long in the workplace and in our neighborhoods, wherever? And so has your belief in Jesus changed your understanding of, of morality, that there's not a sliding scale that whatever works so that I can stay in charge. No, it's, it's the God of heaven and his law. And has your belief in Jesus changed your view of your greatest need? John masterfully illustrates this point by using the very words of Caiaphas to demonstrate just how different the religious rulers' values were from God's values. Look at this. Caiaphas expresses that the Jews' greatest need is to keep peace politically. You see that there? Right? Let's go ahead and sacrifice one man so that we can put this, this gathering crowd kind of to death, literally, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, and so he is willing to keep the peace politically with the Romans regardless of the cost. However, John makes it clear that God is expressing something else through Caiaphas' words. And this is, again, an amazing thing. Something Caiaphas says, but has a double meaning. Caiaphas clearly meant it, but also God used it to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that in verse 51. When Caiaphas said, hey, we need, it's, it's expedient that one man, Jesus, die for the people and that the whole nation not perish, then in verse 51, we have this, this uh, note from John. John says, now he did this. He, now he did not say this on his own initiative. Then the question is, whose initiative was it? Now when we say that, we're not saying that God used Caiaphas as a puppet or like Balaam's donkey or anything like that. But what we are saying, or what, what I am saying, is that God had clearly used Caiaphas' words just as Caiaphas said them and meant them himself. And is God powerful enough to do that? Is God, the creator of the universe, able to do that? I can't do that, but God can. And that's exactly what happens here. There is literally two different meanings to what Caiaphas is saying. The words are true, and they're saying what they're saying, but Caiaphas has no understanding of the theological reality of the substitutionary death that God is expressing here, that John is kind of unpacking as the author of the gospel. And so it's not only not, only, it's not, only not his own initiative, 
But look at what John says, that, that, that he, Caiaphas, being high priest that year. There's kind of a dual focus here. First of all, he's high priest. He's the spokesperson. He's the one who would be able to kind of stand up and, and say something. And it's also the reality that it was this year. The year that God chose, or the time chose, for, for Jesus, his son, to glorify himself through dying on the cross. Remember Galatians 4, where Paul unpacks the reality that, you know, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And here we have a little bit of the, the application to that. Now, in the fullness of time, we often think about that in the incarnation. It's true, but it's really all the way throughout his life, isn't it? And in the fullness of time, God has Caiaphas say something that is more like a mafia man talking, right? We're going to give him, and I don't mean to be, right, but we're going to give him cement shoes, but God uses it for an altogether other purpose. It's more than just the care and the needs of a nation. But as John unpacks it, it's actually for not just a nation, but it's for what? Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into the one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so it's a remarkable thing that Caiaphas talks about a kind of substitutionary death, but John understands it and gives it to us a fuller meaning that God intends for us to understand a prophecy, if you will, that Jesus is our substitution. So I just, I can't move on, but first ask the question, have you accepted Jesus as your substitute for your sin payment on the cross? I trust you have, because that's the only thing that will, that will, satisfy the wrath of God. So mark it down. Unbelief displays the symptoms of replacing God's authority for another, and it will reveal itself in self-interests rather than the interests of God. And lastly, as we close, believing unbelief is religiously distracted. And this is, this is um, I think, helpful and perhaps maybe will help me clarify what I mean by believing unbelief. The religious groups of folks elucidate this point well that people can know about Jesus Christ but they don't trust in Jesus Christ. In, a, in the next chapter they're going to be shouting Hosanna the King, here he comes. And yet a few chapters later they're going to be yelling crucify him. Crucify him because they did not get what they wanted from Jesus. And so as we look at the religiously distracted I want to ask us the question this morning, has your belief in Jesus changed your view of religion? See, many religions, uh, many religious Jews gathering ahead of the Passover. That's what we really see in verse 55. Look at that with me. Now, the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. You see, what was happening is uh, th- this was a command from the Old Testament, from Leviticus chapter 7, that you had to be purified in order to come to the, the Passover. And so they weren't doing anything that was out of the ordinary. But this would oftentimes take a week prior to the Passover. These were religious people taking two weeks out of their life to get it right so that they could come to the Passover. And you know what? Uh, you know how Jesus talks about the Pharisees in Matthew and, and he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. You are like what? Whitewashed sepulchers or whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful but on the inside are dead man's bones. 
People came to stay, to, to number one, get purified so that they come to the Passover, but there was a whole economic and, 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 and buzz about the Passover. You know that those whitewashed, those whitewashed tombs were whitewashed so that people coming to the Passover would not accidentally bump into a tomb instead of just a rock. They wouldn't bump into a tomb and then be unclean to participate in the Passover. They were, there literally was a, someone had to buy and make and, and procure the whitewash. Someone else had to, the, the Pharisees had to contract someone to actually go around and whitewash all the tombs so that these pilgrims coming in to Jerusalem would not accidentally touch them on their, on their, during their week of, of, of purity, of purification, and, and then com- and completely be unable to partake in the Passover because they didn't have enough time to be purified before the Passover came. Jesus says you're like whitewashed tombs. That's what was happening. There's a whole system of religiousness here. And yet, what did they do? They're sitting around saying and standing, oh, do you think Jesus is going to come? You think, you think he's coming? So what does that mean? Well, first of all, that means that they're wondering if Jesus is coming. This is going to be his third Passover. And why are they wondering that? What have they been hearing? Oh, did you hear what the Sanhedrin did? They want Jesus arrested, and they really mean it this time. Oh, why did, they, why did they want Jesus arrested? Well, did you hear what Jesus did with Lazarus? He raised him from the dead. And they can't tolerate that. People are going to wait too excited. How ironic is it that people looking to the Passover, what is the Passover? It's God sending the angel of the Lord, right? To free his people from Egypt. And anyone who had belief slaughtered the Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorposts so that the angel of the Lord would pass through and not kill their firstborn. And yet the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is there. And they're just saying, hey, did you, is he coming? You think he's coming? How tragic. How blind that someone can be celebrating something like the Passover and yet miss, as John proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God. It's just a spectator, spectator sport. And that is how abruptly this narrative closes. John starts with the grandest display of Jesus' power which will be his last public miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. Yet there are folks, religious folks, just standing around wondering if Jesus will appear and be arrested, the Lamb of God. It's hard, isn't it, for us of faith to understand that in, that in the amount of cumulative evidence that Jesus is God's Son, giving sign after sign, you think about it, there's there's barrels of wine there, right? That Jesus turns from water into wine and he, it's like he hangs a sign on it. And what does the sign say? I'm the son of God, right? There's someone who has a, a daughter unto death and he heals. What does he do? Puts a sign on that, on that child. I'm the son of God. A lame man from birth walks, hangs a sign around his neck, right? I'm the son of God. Blind, now see, 
I'm the son of God. Dead, now alive, I'm the son of God. And yet, time after time after time, people make excuses. People fail to see the son of God. Oh, I trust that there's no one in here this morning that would be that. How can anyone dismiss that evidence? Well, John gives us a couple reasons. People are often distracted by their own religion. They're often thwarted by their self-preserving motivations. And, and they're, also, they're often submissive to another authority outside of God's. So I trust this morning that we would see that Jesus is the one. I trust that you would not be like the Pharisee or the common folk that would take the sign around the barrels, if you will, or around the neck of the lame or of the once lame and now, now healed or around Lazarus himself. You wouldn't take that sign and kind of scrub it out. And put traitor there. Or deserves to die there. Because there's either two groups of people here this morning. There's someone who beholds the Lamb of God and sees the sign and reads Jesus, the Son of God. Or there's another. Someone who erases the sign. Puts whatever they want in. Good man. Smart teacher. Religious figure. Whatever. I trust this morning that as we look and as we take heart to understand as John unpacks for us the heart of believing unbelief completely misses the authority of God self-preserving motives and finally is religiously distracted. Father this morning I trust that you would help us to be men and women that would be patient with those who refuse to submit to your authority. We would long to get into the lives of those who are motivated by their own self-interests. And we are kind but clear to those who are religiously distracted. Give us this week the ability to minister your great love and truth to those individuals in our life. Father, I pray that if there's one here this morning that may say, you know, I get that this church doesn't preach perfection. We're not saying not, that we don't struggle with authority in our life, that we don't struggle with our own motivations or selfishness. Of course, we all do. That 
we don't struggle with distractions, but there may be some or one here this morning that they look at their life and they can plainly see and admit that, God, you are not their authority. There may be some that are overwhelmed with just how self-centered they are this morning. It's really not about Jesus. It's about myself. Or they're working through some of the tradition and religious distraction in their life and saying, you know, I've, I've been kind of trusting in those things and not in Jesus, not in the Son of God. Father, I pray this morning that you would work equally in their hearts this morning that they would come to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and that they simply cannot just dismiss Jesus as a historical figure as someone who maybe did those things but not actually trust in them and submit in him as the Savior of the world. And so I pray that, that your Holy Spirit through the word this morning would work. Equip us. Convict us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.